Hey, good morning. How you guys doing? Everybody good? Um, how many of you guys got to come out to that work day yesterday? A few of you guys? Heck yeah, look at that. That's why we saved 100 grand. <laughs> um, it's looking good though, right? Like, man, I'm, I'm excited about it. I wish I had more time to talk to you about all the things that I'm pumped about, but being in there yesterday, it was like somebody, one of our folks, a few of our folks were like pushing brooms, and as soon as they got out of the way, like somebody started laying carpet down. So it's, it's, getting, it's getting real. So, hey, good to be with you guys. Good to get a chance to open the word with you. We're gonna continue today, as Aaron said, in uh, this, this kind of summer series that we're doing called Storyteller. We're taking four weeks um, during the month of July to look at the parables of Jesus. Anybody excited about this except me? Man, I'm like, I'm totally a, like a story junkie. I love stories. If, uh, if anything comes across my newsfeed and it's from Humans of New York, like I'm all in, right? Anybody else? Um, if I'm gonna go, like if, if I know I'm gonna be in the car for a little while, it's gonna be This American Lifetime. I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna hear a story. Some of you guys are with me on that. And uh, so I can only imagine, like what would it have been like to be among the disciples of Jesus, to be walking along the way and have Jesus just say, hey guys, let's take a seat for a sec because I wanna, I wanna tell you a story. Like, how great would that be? I would have loved that. I would have been on the edge of my seat. And so today, what I want us to remember is Jesus actually wanted us to hear his stories. And, uh, and so he's given them to us in his word. And unlike the stories that uh, we tell our kids at bedtime or when we're driving in the car, the made-up stuff that we make up, um, unlike the interesting things that we hear on podcasts like This American Life, Jesus told stories that opened up our eyes and opened up our hearts uh, that, that we just, uh, apart from his vivid storytelling and apart from his help, we just never would be able to see um, Jesus, he told stories that always started with these words. You remember what I'm about to say? The kingdom of heaven is like this. And uh, the kingdom of heaven is something that I think in my, in my family, um, we've been talking about a little bit lately. I'd love to just take a second before we jump into our story to talk about what does that mean? Uh, my grandmother passed away this last week and she was 86 years old. And man, she loved Jesus and uh, she is now... Uh, in the presence of God himself, in the presence of her Savior. And, uh, but it still, it stirred up a lot of questions in the kids, right? So there's these questions of like, okay, so, but heaven, so Gigi's in heaven. What does that mean? Where did she go? Like, what is, what is, uh, happened to her physical body? And uh, my, my niece is four years old, and she was talking to some of the cousins along with my, my sister, her mom, and she announced to everybody, Gigi was on a long car trip to get to heaven. That's where Gigi was. And, uh, and I think that's funny. Like, we kind of understand what she meant by that. Uh, I think that's funny. We laugh about that because she's four years old. But I think a lot of us, um, we have these similar ideas. We have these kind of funny, uh, slightly off ideas about the kingdom of heaven. And so I want to take just a second and talk about that because I think the kingdom of heaven, the idea of heaven, is something that Scripture would invite us to look at again and re-examine what we really believe about what heaven is. I think when Jesus tells us these stories, he's not just using spiritual language so that he might have an excuse to tell a story. I think he's inviting us to see something really big that apart from his storytelling, we just couldn't see. So most of the time, 
in America, you know the story, um, kind of what we think of. You, you talk to people about heaven, and everybody has this idea of like, oh yeah, heaven, it's a destination, like, like Jamaica or, or St. Thomas. Um, it's one place that you can go after you die. And really, a lot of people in our city would tell us, yeah, there's two destinations, right? There's, there's the good destination of going up to heaven. There's the bad destination of going down to hell. And it's pretty simple. It's basic mathematics. Um, if you do more good things, then you're going to go up to the good destination. If you, go, if you do more bad things, you're going to go down to the bad destination, right? Uh, it's, just, it's just that simple. You're going to want your good things to outdo your bad things so that you end up in heaven. Well, when we look at Scripture, um, that's not really how the Bible talks about heaven. It's interesting to me that we plot those two things uh, together as counterparts, heaven and hell, but if you, if, you would, if you were to search the entire scripture, um, you would actually never see that scripture does that. You would, you would see that there's never one place in all of these 66 books of scripture that actually talk about heaven and hell as if they were counterparts. It's fascinating, right? But over and over, what we hear is that throughout scripture, we see that it's clear that heaven and earth are counterparts, and they've been ripped apart. They've been separated. There was... Uh, God's perfect creation, heaven and earth, and they were separated. To be clear, we, we see, like I want to I be clear, um, we see that Jesus talks a lot about hell and judgment, and we're going to even see that in our story today. But what is made clear from the beginning is heaven and earth existed together, and there was perfection, and then they were ripped apart by sin, and the work of Jesus is to actually come and restore all things that have been broken and to reunite heaven and earth. Are you guys with me so far? So, what is heaven? Uh, what is it that Jesus wants us to see? Well, when the Bible talks about heaven, um, in the Old and New Testament, we see all of these glimpses of the way that it describes heaven as God's space. This is God's place. This is God's reign and rule. You remember, remember uh, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth, and everything was perfect. It was God's people under God's rule, and it was perfect, and sin breaks that union, and now we have this separation of heaven and earth. So as you're chewing on that, as you're wrestling with that, a couple of interesting things that I think will kind of blow up some of our paradigms. One, I already mentioned, the Bible never talks about heaven and hell as counterparts. That's weird, because we do. Um, it talks about heaven and earth as counterparts. The other thing is, um, you could do a search today. You could go online and do a search for all of the places in Scripture that use the phrase, go to heaven, you know how many times it would show up? Zero times. The Bible doesn't talk about going to heaven. In fact, um, there's never a tension on whether or not a human being will go to heaven. The tension in Scripture is whether or not God will bring heaven to earth. And this is the work that we see in Jesus, right? We open our Bibles. We see Jesus jumps onto the pages of the New Testament. And what we see is the incarnation of Christ. He shows up. And what does he start doing? People show up, to, the people come to him, and they, have, they have blind eyes, and they're sick, and they have hardness of heart. He starts to forgive sins. He starts to heal their physical bodies, and what are the words that he says? This is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've shown up, and I'm here. <clears throat> and so he's initiated his kingdom, and uh, we see that he has started the kingdom. It is going to come someday fully to earth, and until that day, what has he done? He's given the work of demonstrating and displaying the kingdom to his people, his body. 
And so our mission, when we talk about loving God and loving people and pushing back darkness, this is a mission to see the kingdom of heaven break into earth in our city, right? That's what we're doing. And so when we get to these parables, Jesus is widening our hearts. He's widening the hearts of his disciples to see what it is that we've been called into, heaven colliding with earth. What happens when heaven collides with earth here? Um, well, you have the people of God who love him, and out of the overflow of that love for God comes this unreasonable um, love for people. And out of the overflow of love for God and love for people, we see the kingdom of heaven breaks in and the darkness of our city starts to get pushed back. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 because Jesus has a story for us today. So turn to Matthew 18, and what I think we're going to see is that the kingdom of heaven is marked by something radical. It's marked by forgiveness. So while you're turning there, let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, Spirit of the living God, we're asking that you would come and help us today. God, we, we just, even before we get into the story, God, we just confess that forgiveness is hard, patience is hard, and we want to look up and we want to see what it is that you have done for us, God, in the work of Christ. And so we need, Spirit, your help to come as we open up your word, your Bible. We need you to help us understand it. We need you to help us believe it. We need you to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 21. Follow along with me. <clears throat> then Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So hard words, difficult words. Jesus is opening up um, this story for us so that we might understand some things about forgiveness. And throughout Scripture, we see that for the Christian, for the Christian, forgiveness is not optional. It's just not optional. 
Um, it's also not easy. And so Jesus gives us a clear picture of what it looks like here. So there's three things, three simple things that if you're taking notes, you can write down. I think there's a lot that we could pull out of this story, but three things that I want us to look at today. And the first thing, this one is really hard for me. Forgiveness requires great patience. <laughs> right out of the gate, I'm totally offended by this. I'm offended that Jesus would give us some clues that forgiveness is rooted in what all of us would say that we have plenty of, right? And most of us are actually really deficient in. I'm pretty patient um, as long as the coffee shop gets me my drink in about 60 seconds. Um, We're Netflix streaming episodes people, aren't we? Like we are um, high-speed internet people. And it's offensive to me that Jesus would confront me and would confront all that and would tell me that I'm being called to have patience in my life. But the first thing that Jesus clues in on is if we're going to be a forgiving people, we actually need to be a people that have patience sprouting up in our lives. So Peter, in this story, he, um, he asked Jesus this question, and it could be, it could be phrased like this. Um, hey, Jesus, if someone, if someone that I'm in relationship with, if he comes to me and asks for forgiveness, how many times, uh, at what point, Jesus, is it okay for me to give up on him? Like, at what point is it okay to just say, all right, I'm throwing in the towel, that's enough. Um, and we don't know what Peter's motivation, his heart motivation is in this, but what we know is this is the question that leads to the parable, right? This is the question that leads Jesus to talk to us about forgiveness. And what we also know is in Matthew 18, this is in the middle of a conversation. This is in the middle of a portion of scripture where Jesus starts to unpack and open up what does it look like for believers, for brothers and sisters to be in a relationship where there might be conflict with one another, right? Anybody read this? Matthew 18, we see this is the place where we see God's heart for reconciliation. We see what, it, what happens when a brother sins against you. Um, what would it look like for a believer or a group of believers to actually be the means of grace that would call someone to repentance? And so what we, what we don't see happening here, this is not Jesus saying, hey, when uh, someone wrongs you, when someone sins against you, just ignore it. Blow it off. Forget that it ever happened. That's not what Jesus is saying. Um, He actually is just given a command about how to properly rebuke a brother, but on the road to that reconciliation, the heart of God, some things need to be in place. And so I have to believe that Peter's heart is good here. I have to believe that he really wants to figure out, God, what does it mean for me to forgive? What does it mean for me to be patient? I think that he's thinking back to a conversation that we have recorded in Matthew chapter 5. And this is this place where Jesus starts to say all these crazy things. <laughs> he says, you've heard it said uh, not to kill, right? Everybody heard that? Well, I want to say to you something else. Even if you commit hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've, you've committed murder in your heart. He says, you've heard it said that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to love our neighbor and hate our enemies. And I want to say to you something else. Even your enemies you need to show love to. So Jesus has said all these crazy things uh, to, to these disciples, and I think Peter is hearing all that, and I think he's trying to let his heart and his head catch up to what this upside-down kingdom actually looks like. And so he says, hey, Jesus, um, I'm just trying to take all this in, and I hear you talking about forgiveness. And, uh, you know, the law would say that if someone has committed a sin against me, if someone has wronged me, what the law has made clear is that I have to forgive him up to three times up to three times for the same thing I've got to forgive him. And so I'm just, I'm trying to take all this in and I wonder, what do you think, Jesus? What if we just called it seven? 
Is that, does that feel, feel right? And it's like Jesus goes, bud, you, you just, you're so far behind. You don't even understand what it is to operate in this kingdom mentality. Jesus looks at him and he goes, hey, even when you get to 77 times and he's still sinning against you, there's no limits in the kingdom of God uh, for forgiveness. And when he says all that, I don't know if Peter was offended, but I really am. <laughs> because I hate, uh, I hate the idea of being that patient. If I can't wait on a microwave to cook my food in 30 seconds, it's going to be really hard for me to have patience with other broken people like me. Um, I'm the least patient person I know. Um, I've never been to uh, Orlando, Florida. I've never been to Disney World. I've never been to Disney anything, really, until the last couple of weeks, and my family took a trip. We got away for a, a summer vacation, and we, my wife and I have always kind of said, hey, when the kids are the right age, if there's any way that we can save up enough, is there any way we can get down there? It would be really, really fun. These are her words, really. <laughs> it would be really fun. It would be really fun to get the kids down to Disney World. And so uh, that's what we did. We got down there, and let me just tell you right now, if you love waiting in line, Disney World is totally your place. It's your spot. You're going to love it. Um, unless you have the, the coveted, what, Fast Pass. I hear you guys whispering it. You know. You know about the Fast Pass. And we learned about this. We got down there. And the way that Fast Passes work is if you get the Fast Pass for the specific ride, well, man, they just put you right at the front of the line. And, uh, and, and it's great. It's beautiful. Now, if you get the Fast Pass, you go to the front of the line, you feel like royalty. Man, it's like they, they roll out this red carpet and you just move right up and everybody's looking at you like, dang, those guys. And if you don't have the fast pass, well, it's like you're in Florida and it's 120 degrees outside and you're waiting in line. That's what it feels like. Uh, and so at one point, we're, we're, um, we're going into one of the parks and we actually, I'm with a couple of my boys and I said, hey guys, before we go, I've got a question I've got to ask. We go over to this like guest relations desk and they have like a, you know, they have a counter and a window and, uh, and I, I get in the line and it's like the place is just about to open. There's only one or two people in front of us and I just have to, I have to work, it, work something out with them. And I'm with my youngest son, Gray. He's eight years old. And uh, we're standing there for like 30 seconds. <laughs> and we're waiting in this line. The counter, you know, the guy at the counter is about to call us up. And he looks at me and he goes, Dad, do we have a fast pass for this? <laughs> and like in the moment, you know, I try to be the good dad. And I'm like, hey, buddy, like it's, let's be patient. We're about to go have all this fun. And, and uh, like this is just going to take us a couple of minutes. Don't worry about it. Be patient. And in my heart, I'm like, bro, I know. Like, I totally wish we had a fast pass for this. <laughs> like, I, told, I wish we had a fast pass for the lines. I wish we had a fast pass for the lunch. I wish we had a fast pass for all this terrible Orlando traffic. I wish I had a fast pass for, like, all the work that's waiting for me when I get home. I wish I had a fast pass for, like, being a better father and a better husband and a better pastor. And while I feel Jesus, like, inviting me into patience in all of those areas— the kind of patience, this is where it gets painful for me, <laughs> the kind of patience that we see in this story is actually something quite different. It's something deeper that needs to be formed in us. Um, when we see the translation of patience in our New Testament, um, what we're seeing is the, the people that have, have done the work to give us the translation, they're translating a Greek compound word. And, uh, and so patience, I don't feel like completely does it justice, especially in this story. Um, maybe some of you remember this translation. Do you remember the word long-suffering? Long-suffering. 
Um, that's the word that's being used in the Greek here. In fact, even more accurately, if we did a, 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 I did some work this week and I saw even more accurate translation of that compound Greek word would be the word long-temperedness. Long-temperedness. This is a, actually the word that would come out of the vocabulary of a blacksmith, and this is what it means. The ability of a specific metal to keep its composure when tested with fire. It means the ability to bear under pressure of injury and suffering and not melt down. Wow. That's what it means. That's the kind of patience that's being talked about. So we take a closer look at this story, and we see that we have a servant and a king here, right? And we would think, okay, a servant in the king's house. He probably cooks the food. He probably keeps the place clean. Um, maybe he's even like kind of a chief of staff where he oversees other servants. Anybody else get that picture in mind like when we, when we read this story? Well, when we look at the debt that's owed, we realize that actually can't be the kind of servant that is in the story. Um, so it's hard for us to, to make comparisons of sums of money um, from an ancient time and place, right? So I want to help you out. A talent. Remember what the debt was? 10,000 talents. One talent, this is actually was, a, was a, a measurement of weight in either silver or gold. And uh, the average laborer, the average worker in this time and in this place earned about one talent per annual year, per year. One talent was earned. So let's, let's try to do the math here. There's 10,000 of those owed to this king. It, I, I, uh, I looked it up this week. An average salary for an OKC resident, as, as last recorded, maybe this feels high, maybe this feels low to you, but this is what I was able to find. In Oklahoma City, the average worker, the average resident, um, earned $47,000 in a year. So let's just do that math. Let's say 47,000 is an average salary times 10,000, and you end up with a debt of $470 million. This is not an average debt. And what the listeners in this story would have understood is this is not somebody who cooks or cleans. This would have been an overseer of a province. So the king would have sent overseers out to these different parts of his kingdom to oversee the work that is happening, to oversee the building of society. And what we have is through some kind of gross mismanagement, um, some kind of theft, we don't know what has happened, somehow this guy has lost or squandered an almost unthinkable amount of money. It's huge, right? And in a moment, forgiveness with great patience is offered to this person. And I just think that it's helpful for us maybe right here to stop and compare this with some of the things that make us impatient. I already told you some of mine. Traffic really does this for me. <laughs> Um, people that are around us that do annoying things like talk with their mouthful or chomp ice. Like, those make me impatient, right? Um, I get really impatient when I'm ha trying to have a conversation with my wife and the kids are interrupting. Anybody else feeling this? Yes. That's the first time I got an amen all morning. My goodness. Um, I I I'm impatient when my wife is not able to read my mind. That's frustrating to me. And now I feel the bar going higher and higher and higher because I don't know about you, but I've never, ever, one time, forgiven a debt of a, even a million dollars. Never been asked to. I've never even known what that might feel like. And this debt in the story, in a moment, is forgiven. So there's incredible patience that's demonstrated um, 
Jesus is showing us in the kingdom of heaven, this is what forgiveness looks like. This is what patient looks like. But there's also this massive debt. There's the issue of this, what would be $470 million to us. And I think Jesus shows us this magnitude of debt because he wants us to realize it wasn't just a debt that was forgotten about. I think we think about forgiveness and we think maybe it was forgotten, maybe it was just written off in the ledger sheet. And he says, that's actually not what happened. This was a debt that personally cost the master. And so the second thing I want us to see, forgiveness, it always costs something to someone. When we think about forgiveness, I think a lot of times we think about it using the old adage, forgive and forget, right? We think forgive and forget, and it's over with. And we think that those things simultaneously happened, and so it's like nothing ever happened in the first place. Well, that's actually not what forgiveness means. Um, the definition, when we work, uh, when, when we work out what, what forgiveness actually is, it means there's two parties, right? And one person owes a debt to the other party. And rather than making the first person pay down the debt and work through it, or pay it all in full at one point in time, the second person actually takes responsibility, and they say, you know what? It's forgiven. It's okay. Um, my, my, uh, my good buddy, Eric Haley, lives next door to me, and, uh, you know, this is something that we do sometimes. We borrow tools from one another, and so let's just say Eric comes over to my house. He says, hey, buddy, my lawnmower's in the shop. Um, I wonder if I could use your lawnmower, and I'm going to say, of course, man. You know where it's at. It's out back. Go ahead. Um, have fun with that. And say he brings it back to me hour, hour and a half later, and Eric's just got this look on his face, and he goes, hey, um, like, when I, when I started using this, it worked, <laughs> and uh, now it doesn't work anymore. Like, you know, the motor's blown up, and the blades are kind of all mangled up, and he says, but I'm going to take care of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it right with you. I'm going to go to the Lowe's, or I'm going to pay for a new lawnmower. Well, I have a choice in that moment, don't I? Like, this is basic sociology. I have a choice. I can either say to him, hey, man, uh, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll be anxious for you to, to get with me, and we'll go to Lowe's together, pick out a new mower, whatever we got to do. Or, what's the other thing I can do? I can say to him, hey, man, I love you. Don't sweat it. Um, I, I didn't really like that mower anyway. <laughs> um, I, I, I love a chance to go to Lowe's and pick out a new mower. I'm going to take responsibility. Don't you worry about it. It's on me. I could do that. And that would be forgiving the debt. So back to the story, the emperor's personal wealth. Um, in this story, uh, what we see and what we know about history is that this overseer would have been sent with the emperor, with the king's personal wealth. It would have been gold, and it would have had the, the king's face on it, right? And his job was to go out to the province and to build society. So this money would have been spent building roads, building bridges, uh, would have been spent building a military, putting some kind of infrastructure of public safety into place. And so when he shows up and he says, I lost it all, what does it mean for the king? For the king to forgive that debt is actually him saying, I will take the loss. I'm willing to forgive this and take the loss myself. It says, verse 27, out of pity for him, the, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the kind of forgiveness that Jesus tells us is alive and on display in the kingdom of heaven is forgiveness that costs the person that's been wronged. It costs them, but nevertheless, it's offered up freely when it's asked for. And I just think that it's hard for us. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's hard for us, I think, to wrap our heads and our hearts around this level of forgiveness. A lot of times when Jesus told these stories, 
um, either on the front end or on the back end, we would see these words. The people either asked the question or they walked away from the story trying to justify themselves. And I think in this moment, we could hear a massive debt and forgiveness like this and great patience, and we could start to justify ourselves. Like you hear the little voice in your head start to say, yeah, maybe if it were money, um, but in my situation, man, it's just different. It's just different. Like if, if, if you only knew what it cost me, if you only knew the way that this other person or this group of people has hurt me, if you only knew the depths of my soul that have been affected by this, um, you would just realize it, it would cost me way too much to just forgive the debt. And I think if we were honest, some of us are feeling that this morning. And so what we, what we prefer far more than to forgive the debt, what we prefer to do far more than that is we want them to pay the debt. We want them to pay it down. And if we can just make them feel a little bit more sorry, and we can just only let them see what it is that they've really done to us, if we can only, um, if we can only withhold our relationship from them a little bit longer, uh, maybe they're going to come to a place where they just realize how much they hurt us. And in those moments, the debt slowly but surely over time will start to be paid. And I think that when we do that, we think that justice is happening. And I think that we think that somehow they're learning a lesson but really it's us that's changing. It's us that's changing and not for the better. Unforgiveness, it eats at us. It allows bitterness to rule in us. And I wonder if part of the reason that Jesus in this story, he describes the person that is riddled with unforgiveness to be put in prison is because that's the state that we're in when we're in unforgiveness, when we're not able to forgive a brother or a sister. It's like we're in prison. I read this quote um, this last week, and I just thought this was so good. It says, um, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Man, is that right? We want so badly to hold the debt. We want so badly to imprison the other person, at least for some amount of time, at least relationally. We want so badly to hold it over them so that maybe they'll come to us at some point and feel all of this remorse. That's what we want so bad, and, and it's like when that happens, we're drinking poison, and we're just waiting for them to die. Jesus came, and he said that his kingdom was a kingdom to bring life and fullness and abundant joy, and he gets to this teaching on unforgiveness, and he describes a person being imprisoned. When we force someone else to pay the debt that they're in against us, it's actually us that are in prison, but you guys, what I think Jesus would say to us today is when we pay the debt ourselves, when we're actually willing to give the forgiveness of the kingdom, that's when we're actually free. I read all these amazing stories of forgiveness this last week, and one, it just stood out to me. Um, this, this woman, Scarlett Lewis, her son Jesse was killed in 2012 in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. It's the biggest school shooting in U.S. history, and at first, this is what she said, she felt like her anger sapped all of her strength and energy. And she was angry at the shooter and the mother for unwittingly arming him. And she felt like she was tied to the man who killed her son, thinking about it every day. But after some time, she made a choice to forgive. And in an interview, she said these words, forgiveness felt like I was given a, a big pair of scissors to cut that tie and regain my personal peace. She said it started with a choice and then became a process. Man, I, I can't even imagine what, what that must have felt like. But I do know that true forgiveness, it costs us something. 
but it bears this fruit that is on display in our lives for other people to see. And that's, that's really the third thing. The last thing that I want us to see is that forgiveness, number three, it changes the person that's been forgiven. Forgiveness changes the forgiven. So in the story, the servant, he leaves the king's quarters. He's completely forgiven. And the first thing that he does is he remembers somebody else that owes him a debt. And he calls him in, and he wants to have a conversation about it. Again, it's hard to know exactly what 100 denarii meant, but um, let me just, again, use our measurement. This was about 100 days' labor worth of pay. And what he does is he turns around. He's just come out of being forgiven. He turns around. He finds the guy. It's 100 days' labor, and he demands, pay me what I'm owed. And what happens? The guy gets on his knees. The guy holds his hands out, and he says, these words that I think a tender heart, a forgiving heart, a patient heart would have heard these words and would have felt really familiar, right? He goes, be patient with me. Forgive me. I'm going to do everything I can to pay this debt back. And the servant, the wicked servant, he, he just says, absolutely not. I'm going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. Get him out of my sight. Jesus tells us, man, the, the king hears about it, and it's not good. He's dragged off to prison, and then we get these, these words. My heavenly Father will do the same to any one of you who doesn't forgive from the heart. What does Jesus mean? What is he talking about? Because I think that we get to verse 35, and we have this kind of Bible Belt um, religious mentality, at least somewhere in the back of our minds, and we hear this, and we go, oh God, I, the last thing I want is to be under your judgment. And so what I gotta do is I gotta walk out of here and I gotta figure out how is it possible that in my life, I got that thing going on at work and I got the thing going on with family, I gotta figure out how to be a more forgiving person. Or at least I gotta figure out how to make it look like I'm nicer than I am. <laughs> I, I gotta figure that out. I gotta make people at least believe that I'm a forgiving person. And that's actually the opposite of what this is saying, he's not saying that the kingdom of heaven looks like all of us rushing out these doors and going to earn our righteousness, right? That's really clear again and again through the whole New Testament. And he's not saying be nice so that it at least comes across to others that you're forgiving them. No, he says, he says these words because I think all of us could probably pull that off. This is what Jesus says. Forgiveness from your heart, from your heart. And, and I just think Jesus, in a loving and confrontational way, he's warning us to say, the kingdom of heaven actually looks like people who are captured by grace. You're captured by grace. And when you're captured by the grace of God, you remember that you were God's enemy. You were far from him. You were running. You were doing everything you could to sin against him. And he actually pursued you. And he didn't just write the debt off. He paid it with his own blood. And Jesus is saying, when you get that, when it seeps down into your heart, there's no way on earth or in the kingdom of heaven that you won't be a changed person. We want to turn it around and we want to say, if I forgive other people, then God will forgive me. And we, and we want to turn it around and we want to say, if I'm kind to my neighbor, then God will be kind to me. And the problem with this is that scripture is again and again confronting it. And thank God it does because grace <laughs> is so much better than hard work or faking it. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, we see this kind of starts to get worked out. And we see that in Galatians, Paul is writing to this church and he's just saying, hey, this is what it's going to look like. When God starts to change you, 
Like there's stuff that's going to start to fall off of you. The works of the flesh, it just isn't going to work anymore. And he says there's going to be these marks of a changed heart, marks of a heart that's being captured by grace. And he says it's going to look like love, and it's going to look like joy, and it's going to look like patience, long-suffering. He says it's going to look like goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. It's going to look like self-control. That's what it looks like when you've truly been captured by grace. It's the work of Jesus in you. It's his spirit overwhelming those works of the flesh. And that stuff just starts to fall off. And so what is proven in this story by the servant showing up and choking the other guy, what is being proven by Jesus to us is this is a guy who actually never received the grace of the first master. He never received it. It was more license for him to go out and be the merciless guy that he already was. Um, What he does is he comes into the king's presence and he asks for forgiveness because he wants to avoid pain. And he avoids that pain, and then what he does is he goes out and he just continues to be the person that he already was. And Jesus is pleading with us from scriptures today to say, if you've really been captured by the grace of God, then it's going to change you, and it's going to be on display in your life. Um, I read it this way uh, this week. A forgiving heart is a forgiven heart. And uh, when we've truly been forgiven by Jesus for the great treason that we've committed against him, um, it's going to show up in our lives. So for you today, Jesus has been extremely patient with you. Jesus has paid a debt that belonged to you. He stood in. He paid a debt that was yours to pay. It was a life sentence. It was, de- it was a death sentence. And he stood in and he paid it. And this is, this is maybe the best news that I have today. Jesus didn't just consistently teach on forgiveness. He demonstrated it. Can you think of, a, can you think of a, a time in the life of Christ that is more clear, a, a more clear picture of injustice and harm and suffering, um, hurling insults at Christ, spitting on Christ, his arms stretched out on the cross, and what does he say? Father, forgive him forgive him. He intercedes for us that God might not count our trespass against us. He says they don't even know what they're doing. He has forgiven us at the cross, and today, man, (laughs) he hasn't just forgiven us. He is forgiving us. He continues to forgive us, and um, I just confess to you guys, there are times in my life where I just, I forget what it looks like. I forget what it looks like to live in an understanding way with my brothers and sisters. And I go back to this place in Ephesians 4 when I'm having trouble remembering what that looks like. It's this great chapter in Scripture that just helps me turn my eyes away from self-centeredness. And uh, just read you a couple of verses that I love and is a beautiful reminder for us. Verse 31, Ephesians 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, as we close, I would love for us to just do a little heart work. Love for us to just think about what is your story? Is a huge piece of your story that Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Listen, who is forgiven perfectly in this room? None of us. But the question is, is the trajectory of your life moving away from bitterness and anger and unforgiveness towards the grace of God that overflows in a patient and forgiving way. Is that your story? Or would you say today that actually you're, you don't have 
long-temperedness. You actually, you actually find yourself more and more becoming angry and becoming bitter and melting down. And, and I just, I'll just tell you guys, like, it's hard for me to hear the words of Jesus that say, receive the grace that I have for you today. <laughs> like, I just think about, um, you know, my grandmother. She passed away and she was 86 years old. I think about, is there any possible way that I'm gonna get to an age like that and day by day actually see the grace of God transforming me in my life so that when I die, I look more like Jesus? Is that, is that even possible? And, uh, and I just share with you some encouragement that my grandfather gave to me this last week. Um, he's he's, he's uh, been walking with Jesus for over 70 years. This last Saturday, this, is, this was part of the heartbreak, this last Saturday, and the joy, this last Saturday, they celebrated 66 years of being married to one another. Best friends, man. Best friends. And, uh, and he just shared with me. I just, you know, we're just standing around, kind of around her, singing songs and sharing memories uh, before she passed away. And, and he's just, he starts telling stories. <laughs> uh, and I loved it. He starts telling these stories of when they were first married, they actually took their honeymoon and drove to Fort Worth, Texas, so that he could enroll in seminary. This is a guy who gave most of his life to the ministry. He enrolls in seminary. And while they're in seminary, he's in full-time school. He's volunteering to pastor a church in this little town, and he's working a night shift. I'm just like, how could you do that? Like, it seems impossible. And this is a guy that his entire life, my entire life, as long as I've known him, he never, ever put himself first. He always looked to the needs of his bride first. He always looked to the needs of others first. And, uh, and he said these words to me, and I just thought it was really helpful. I said, how is it possible that you could do that for your bride for 66 years? How is it possible that you could love the other people around you in, in the way that I just know that he has? And his answer was this. He said, one day at a time, <laughs> in the mercy that God gave me for that day. And, uh, and he said, I never knew it was difficult. I never knew I was in a difficult time until I turned around and I, and I looked back at what God had brought me through. And uh, man, I just, I think somebody wrote that faithfulness is actually long obedience in the same direction. That's what I want for my life. And I know that by God's grace, as I ask him to forgive me, and as I ask him to show off his forgiveness in my life, the kingdom of heaven is gonna break in. Kingdom of heaven is gonna break into my life, into my family, into my neighborhood, and into our city. And that's for all of us. Amen? So could we stand up together? Here's how I would love for us to close. We're going to come to the table of the Lord. And uh, Jesus, he's given us some, some hard words to wrestle with today, and he's given them to us because he loves us. There's this quote that I read from John Wesley um, this, this last week, and it's just been haunting me. He said, if forgiveness is what it means to be a Christian, then where are all the Christians? And man, I just, I want us to feel that today. I want us to, with our eyes closed, maybe with our hands open, I want to just ask you a couple of questions. This is just for you. This is not for anybody else. Have you really received the forgiveness of God, and is it on display in your life? Is that radical, unbelievable forgiveness on display in your life? Because if it is, then you've, you've received it. It's because you've received the forgiveness and grace of God. And, and I want to ask you, is God in this moment this is the way the Holy Spirit works. If you're in Christ, he's probably bringing something to mind for you. And this would be a really good moment to, f to repent of 
unforgiveness. This would be a really good moment to hold it out before Jesus and say, I don't even know how I'm going to do this, God, but I feel you're calling me to repent. I feel that you're calling me to forgive. And here's the thing. When we forgive, when we pay the debt down, when we pay it back, when we pay the debt that someone else owes to us, even when it hurts, here's the thing. We can hold that out, and that can actually be an offering to Jesus when we remember that he's forgiven us and we did not deserve it. You guys, $470 million doesn't even hold a candle to the debt that Jesus Christ has forgiven you for today. So I want to just ask you to take a sec. Say, God, where, where are you calling me to forgive? Where are you calling me to repent?